the College Planning Edge. Multiply your odds of getting into your dream college and get your hands on thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships. Brought to you by Lockwood College Prep, helping college-bound families get the edge in college admissions, financial aid, scholarships, and test prep. Of how to qualify for financial aid and scholarships. Welcome. My name is Andy Lockwood from Lockwood College Prep, and I'm here to run you through some. Uh, how to whoops. qualify for. That's my other monitor, making sure that uh, things are beaming out. So if you can hear me okay and see everything, uh, please introduce yourselves in chat. Say hi. Let us know where you're from. Uh, that is always cool for us to see you know, where people tune in from. Uh, Pearl is womaning the chat behind the scenes. She is also, um, as a sort of reward for you in terms of um, showing up on time, she's posting what I promised you, which was an opportunity to get a copy of my book for free, How to Pay. We just revised that, um, How to Pay Wholesale for College. So... Let's see here. All right. I see Jim from Dobbs Ferry, Brooke from Avon, Suzanne from Philly, Diane from North Carolina, Colleen from Manhasset. Yes, the mysterious Colleen. Um, David from somewhere, other David probably from California, Randy Long Island, Andy looking snazzy Colleen. That's so funny, sort of. Um, yeah, I, I had a photo of me, I guess, when I went to the U.S. Open a couple of weeks ago, and a friend of mine, I was apparently I was wearing this shirt, and a friend of mine said something like, hey, you look great in pistachio. That was, uh, by the way, Pearl, I was Hal Lieberman, in case oh you're wondering. God. Yeah, from Minnesota. So anyway, okay, good. Sounds like we're coming in loud and clear. So um, here's what's going to happen. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through a quick presentation, probably keep it to under an hour. That's, that's the intent. I want to respect everyone's time uh, for joining us. And uh, you're going to hear a lot of stuff that's different than what you probably have heard from other parents or other um, perhaps guidance counselors or people like that. So just all I ask is that you keep an open mind. Um, don't, you know, don't, don't shut down what you, uh, just because it sounds different. And I, I will be answering questions. Pearl's going to be um, kind of helping with that. And I'll, I'll stop in a few minutes to uh, to go over them once I get to a stopping point. Okay, so now I'm going to attempt to share my screen, which always makes my heart drop a little bit. And I'm going to go right into actually I don't even need these financial aid and scholarship secrets exposed. So if you can see my slides, uh, let me know. Um, ba -ba, it looks okay in my monitor. So good. Tan. Oh, you said I'm looking tan. Colleen. That's funny. It's a spray tan. I did it for the webinar. All right, good. Okay, let's go. So here's what you're going to discover today. Loopholes and landmines to slash college costs, even if you think what's the use, or maybe you have stronger language. Uh, we'll never qualify for anything. I'm going to cover way more than 12 mistakes to avoid. I'm going to go over a couple of case studies of successful negotiations with colleges, and I'm going to have special tips um, for special categories, business owners and divorce families. Who is this for? 
This is for parents who have no friggin' idea how on God's green earth they'll be able to cough up $70,000 per year per kid. Or parents who have the money, they just don't see the value or the return on investment in paying full boat. I think that is questionable at best. It's also for any parent who admits that they really don't have a clue about where to start or they're just stressed out about any of this stuff, getting into college, paying for college, you name it. So if any of these or all of these describe you, you are in the right place. So just for a moment, imagine you had a magic wand and you could comfortably afford your child's dream college with zero stress or sleepless nights about how you're possibly going to pay and without satelliting your kid or you with college loan payments for the indeterminate future. How great would that feel? That's really what we're trying to do tonight. The flip side of that is if you don't pay attention and you don't take notes and don't you don't implement the advice I'm going to be uh, giving you, you have to kind of ask yourself, well, are you willing to risk crushing your kid's dreams by telling her you can't afford to send her to the college that she worked her butt to get off to get into? You know, she did her part. Are you going to do your part? You have the opportunity now. Will your kid end up buried in hundreds of thousands of dollars of high rate, high fee college loans? Are you, are you okay just needlessly forking your cash over to these ripoff colleges, possibly delaying your retirement for years while you struggle to pay off your loans or maybe your, your kids' loans? That's, that's why this is important. Now, uh, I do see a lot of familiar faces in the chat, but I know there's plenty of people who don't know who we are. So just really quick before we get into the, the actual instructional stuff here, maybe wondering who are the Lockwoods, who are Pearl and Andy, why should we pay attention? Uh, so three best-selling books, including the one that you can still download for a few more minutes as a reward for your punctuality. Um, I'm also a um, sort of a, a paid trainer or coach to other financial advisors who want to learn about how to navigate the college financial aid system. And, and frankly, we get terrific client results, which is to me the only really important thing on this on this slide here. I'll tell you a little bit about my backstory because I don't always do this, but a lot, a lot of times people ask me how I got into this business. So um, back when I was attending uh, college, I went to the, thank you very much, fourth most expensive school at the time. Wesleyan University. And my dad, who was a photojournalist, this is a photo of him with, uh, you can probably recognize uh, Fidel over there. This, uh, my dad wrote a book about Fidel Castro and he did a lot of other really high profile things, but he was a freelance photographer and he didn't really make a lot of money. By the time I was born, he had diabetes and he was disabled and, and very low income. But he was a do-it-yourselfer type of guy, which was, um, as far as my mom was concerned, a disaster when he did taxes. He, he would just have all these piles of paperwork. He wasn't very organized, never did anything on time. My guess is that he didn't really see the value of hiring an accountant or, or other experts. So his attitude with me and loans and financial aid was, you know what, just go to the best school that you can. We'll figure it out. It's going to work out. Don't worry about it. This is how it worked out. It really didn't. Racked up six figures worth of uh, a debt and struggled with all kinds of, you know, I, didn't always, I wasn't always able to make the payments. So crazy, you know, uh, credit issues and all sorts of stuff. And that's, you know, why I say my dad didn't have a me. I don't know if he would have even paid attention to a me back then. But now I want you to know that I went through all these struggles. And I learned all this stuff the hard way. You don't have to. 
if you pay attention to what I'm going to say tonight, you're going to fast track and shortcut all that horrible stuff. And frankly, you know, one of the things that got us into this uh, field is, you know, we have four kids of our own, Pearl and I, and we swore to each, you know, to each other and to them that they would never go through anything remotely like what I went through. And um, if you're having trouble, for those of you trying to do the math here, that there actually are four kids here. That's that's not another head growing out of Pearl, a, a mini me head. That's our, <laughs> that's her mini me daughter, Sammy. So. <laughs> anyway, um, but in terms of our clients, these are the types of results we, we always get for clients. This is uh, a nice testimonial from Stephanie Salzbank in Port Washington. She was worried that uh, none of her friends got financial aid, and then and then she started getting her offers from you know the, her daughter's great schools that she was hoping to get into, like Ithaca and BU. My friend said, I can't understand how you received so much in assistance. Well, I got nothing. I even had the FAFSA people, whatever that means, fill out the forms. And Steffi said, you know, thank you. You made this whole process so easy, less stressful and downright fun. You know, all the loopholes. So that's one example. Uh, we also help kids get into college with the essays and applications. This is a text I got from uh, Julie Perellis down in um, Kulet, who, who was just gushing that she was told by the Cornell admissions officer that her kids' applications stood out. And she you know, gave me a lot of credit for making those possible. Um, this is a very uh, cool. Um, Dennis O'Hara is a superintendent, and he says he knows a lot of college planners who promise results but don't deliver. In your case, I got real results, and he gets thanked by parents to recommend him. Here, here's the craziest testimonial I ever got, then we'll get into the presentation. Um, fake Donald Trump just loved the work that we fake did for him. So, okay. <clears throat> Moving along. Let me make an obvious point here. The less you spend on college, the more money you have for other stuff. And that's really what this is all about. You have more money for retirement. You have more money for paying off your mortgage if you're that crazy. You have um, you can do fun stuff like take vacations or eat out more or buy jet skis. I don't, I don't really care what you do. You'll just have more to be able to do that. You can do anything other than just giving it to these rip-off colleges. So where do you start? And a lot of people... Uh, you may also be in this group. You've heard about all these forms, the FAFSA. That's just one of several hard-to-figure-out acronyms. This process is crazy complicated, and I personally think it's for no reason. But when you get the government involved, that's what happens. You know, things get out of hand. So you may be willing to throw up the red, uh, the white flag, or the equivalent of of the white flag, and that's you know you shouldn't do that. But I don't blame you. It's totally not your fault. You you shouldn't expect any help from I mean, people do this, but unfortunately, they shouldn't expect any help from guidance counselors or accountants or, or financial guys, and I'll get into that uh, more in a couple of minutes. This is one of the reasons why. This is the regulatory scheme, the simplified view behind, yeah, simplified behind the FAFSA, which is the easier form. This is what it looks like. There's other stuff that's really stacking the odds against being successful in this product, other factors here. Tuition has skyrocketed compared to virtually every other, literally every other industry, cost of living or medical care and all that, and it's continuing to go up. A lot of experts predict that student loans are the next bubble to burst with repercussions that are going to ripple throughout the economy. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I understand what they're saying. There's other challenges that our kids, you know, I have kids the same age as you, most likely, who are facing 50% of college grads are underemployed, meaning they don't have jobs that require college degrees even two years 
after they graduate. That's crazy. 93% of employers in, in polls and hiring managers say that college grads are completely unprepared for the workforce. Student loan defaults are out of hand. They're supposedly slowing, but I think a lot of that has to do with these income um, repayment, income-based repayment plans, which really just kind of kick the can down the road. And ultimately, taxpayers, I think, are going to be the ones that are going to pick up the the rest of the uh, discharge loans. But those, the defaults are still very, very high. And that's why you should understand that you got to take this seriously because the odds are stacked against you. So I'm going to zip through five secret ways that colleges and the Department of Education are out to get you. And uh, then we're going to go through some tips once you understand, you know, the playing field here, some tips that you can use to beat these colleges and the government at their own sick game. <laughs> because in financial aid, it's the responsible middle-class families who do things like live below their means who are punished for doing the right thing, while irresponsible families are rewarded for doing the wrong thing. I'm not saying this to be political. I think I'm being pretty – there's different ways to look at this, but I think this is really straightforward and, and, and factual, and you'll see what I mean. Here's one example. Home equity, the trap of owning a home. Now, I'm guessing people, you know, you may be one of them on this, on this presentation, think that um, if you own a home, it doesn't count against you. It's not supposed to count against you. That is partially true. It's not completely true because more than 400 colleges actually penalize you for owning a home. In other words, they expect you to be able to tap that equity, maybe an equity line, maybe refinancing, to be able to use as an asset to pay for college. So what they do is if you have equity in your house, they treat you as if you have that money ready, ready willing, and able to use to pay for college, and they, they reduce your eligibility by that amount. So there is a penalty for owning a home and having a low mortgage and paying it off. And frankly, it's not just the colleges. The government would rather lend you their high-rate, high-fee loans as opposed to encouraging you to use some, you know, lower-rate options and possibly even tax-deductible options like your home. And why do you think that is? Look at how much interest they make on student loans. I've seen studies that say that it's more than a billion and a half dollars per year. It's a lot of, a lot of profit there. So don't. That, that's one reason why the odds are stacked against you if you own a home. Secret number two: colleges punish you in general for having a living, paying your bills, and saving money. But I will show you how to level the playing field. Third secret is that some savings. That, that you can use, you can avail yourself of, don't count against you at all. They're completely penalty-free. There are actually four example loopholes. Um, I call it 4.5 example loopholes in the financial aid formulas that I will go over with you in a few minutes. The fourth secret is you'll never hear about these loopholes except by chance. If you just happen to have stumbled across this webinar, you're not going to hear them from guidance counselors who, frankly, are not trained in the nuances of financial aid. And the average ratio of, of kid to counselor is something like 501 nationally. In New York, where we are, it's in the 400s to one. And even at the private schools, we have a lot of kids who attend private school. The ratios are better, but, but still the issue is that guidance counselors and, and college people at, at private high schools are not trained. They don't really focus on the money aspect of it. So you're not going to get help from them. CPAs and accountants, you know, they are ostensibly experts in the tax code, but that is so, it's a lot of work for them to keep up. They have their hands full 
uh, and it's you know there's a big change going on right now. So to ask them to then also delve into the college financial aid rules and regulations is is a tall order. And I have conversations all the time with accountants about certain things that they didn't know, even with their own kids. And, and Pearl and I have a half a dozen or so accountants as clients every year who just say, yeah, we don't want to deal with this. Just you know, take care of it for us. We don't want to make a mistake. So I'm going to share some of those uh, little tidbits with you. So you will be smarter than some accountants about uh, financial aid once we wrap up the hour here. And then there's financial advisors who put themselves, you know, hang out a shingle and say, hey, we do college planning too, but really what they're doing is selling products and earning a commission um, in the, in many cases. I'm sure there's some good financial advisors out there who don't do that. Uh, I am not a financial advisor. I don't sell any products, but um, personally, I felt that there was you know, a little bit of a, um, a conflict. I'd rather just give straightforward advice and then refer to a financial advisor or work with the client's financial advisor. So again, it's a whole new financial advisors not only have a different incentive than uh, doing what's in your best interest, no matter how you slice it, but frankly, you know, they have a lot to keep up with, with their own compliance stuff. So it's hard for them to delve into financial aid also. Okay. And colleges won't tell you because they're businesses. Their agendas are different than your agenda. You know, you may be swayed by the college websites talking about how inclusive they are and how they want to give the best education, the best price. Okay. That's partially true, but they also have to care. They care very much about their U.S. News and World Report rank. Uh, that's, you know, they look at that every year. As soon as that magazine comes out, all the trustees and the president and, you know, the directors, they're all, you know, immediately looking. And then so, so they can brag about it and therefore attract more, more candidates, more applicants who pay application fees. The alumni, you know, are a, a whole body that has another agenda. You know, if they give a lot of money, they have a big say in who gets admitted and who doesn't. Um, diversity is a big thing, and that's, uh, you know, a very hot topic right now. Um, in, in terms of what's what's happening legally these days, so uh, colleges, you know, have a lot of them have these diversity um, quotas or quasi quotas, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they they are constantly after money from the federal government for for researching stuff. Frequently, frankly, it's like you know unreadable, barely publishable, obscure scientific stuff that that doesn't get cited. Uh, by other scientists, but it's designed in order to in order to uh, you know, to win grants for research. So they they care about all this stuff. It's got really nothing to do with quality of education or, or how successful a kid is after college. And they care about um, you know, something called enrollment man management, which is how they leverage or allocate uh, scholarships and financial aid to students that they want more than others. So you may be thinking, you look at all this stuff and think to yourself, it's just not fair. And my answer is right. It's it, who said it's supposed to be fair. You know, if you're applying to college and you're looking at a college, your college list, you're looking at Naviance or whatever you use, and you think, okay, I have a pretty good shot of getting in here because my, my grades and scores seem to be within reason. That's only the start of the conversation. The rest of the conversation is: Are you an underrepresented minority? Are you a legacy? Are you know all these other types of things that can bear on your ability to get in? This that's outside the scope of this presentation. But I just want you to understand that there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on behind the scenes that, that you've never thought about probably when it comes to how colleges make decisions, both in terms of admitting kids and giving money out. And you just need to be aware uh, that you don't know what you don't know. So let's go over some little known facts that you may not know, but you will know. The average discount, whether it's 
merit-based or need-based is 49.1%. And that's according to the National Association of Collegiate Business Officers. It's not coming from me. That's average. The average discount nationally is almost half off. Fact number two, most aid goes to parents who are in the top 25% of income earners in the country. It's, it's six-figure earning families. And look, I know some of you are probably going to have questions about why. I'm just, let me just get through the presentation, and then, like I said, um, in a few minutes, I'll stop for questions. Okay, this is very important to understand. 25% versus 75%. At any given school, roughly 25% plus or minus, only 25%, pay full boat, pay sticker price. They are subsidizing the other 75%. Most people are getting some sort of assistance. That is why I constantly say, and Pearl says the same thing, it's your choice to pay full price. You don't have to. You don't have to go to a school where you're going to pay full price. You don't have to choose to pay to be a sucker. Colleges can fudge things all the time. Um, I was just at a conference couple, uh, maybe a month and a half ago where I was kind of, um, I, I wouldn't say complaining, but I was kind of bemoaning to um, an admissions officer, the head of admissions, I think, from the University of South Carolina, where I said something like, look, it's very irritating to me that when I go look up what the requirements are for merit scholarships, it's always wishy-washy. It's usually something like, you know, the recipients of the presidential scholarship tended to have GPAs of blah, 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 and tended to be in the top blah, blah, blah of their classes and had SAT or ACT scores of, you know. That bothers me because there's no real recipe. So I said, you know, why is this? And she said something that kind of made me feel dumb for asking. She didn't mean it that way. She said, look, <clears throat> if we were to publish the exact uh, the exact criteria, like a recipe for what it took to get this money, then we would get way more applications that met those criteria and we'd be forced to give that money out and we can't afford to do it. Okay, so that's that's the reason they do this, but what I'm saying is that a lot of stuff can be fudged. So merit scholarships can be fudged if a college wants you badly enough and so are need-based grants those can be fudged also. It's all based on the college's agenda. So just because you may think you're going to qualify or you may think you're not going to qualify or you went on the net price calculator of a college and you thought, oh, I have a good shot, and then you don't get anything or sometimes it works the other way around. Again, it's because there's some stuff that you can control and there's some stuff that, particularly the college's institutional agenda, that you cannot control and you have to learn how to play the game. So here's how it all works. So you can get the money that you deserve. Here's the formula. And this is a writer downer for the, for uh, if you haven't seen this before. Even if you have seen this before, I think you should still take some notes here because uh, you'll retain it better. So the formula is COA minus EFC equals your need. Cost of attendance is COA. That stands for tuition plus room and board in all fees for one year. So tuition might be 50. When you add everything else, you might be looking at 65, 70,000 bucks for cost of attendance. The main thing here that, to, that we're going to focus on for the next couple of slides is the expected family contribution. Ah, it's expected, not estimated. It's expected family contribution. So that is the amount that the government feels in its wisdom 
and glory that you can afford for one year of college. Doesn't mean anything other than it's an estimate of what the government thinks you can afford. Doesn't mean you'll pay that, doesn't mean you won't pay that, it's just a formula. And then what's left over is your financial need, and that's the, you know, that's the difference between the two. That's what the financial aid formula indicates that you are eligible for. But I want you to pay attention, that is not necessarily what you'll actually receive in financial aid or what you will pay formula in financial aid. These are just formulas and averages and all that. So a lot of times, people, you know, Pearl does, she did something 300 forms last year for her clients and, you know, someone will have an EFC and they'll be, what, I can't afford to pay that or, oh, oh good, I get to pay that. In both cases, they're wrong. It's, it's how colleges can apply these formulas differently. So that's what we're going to be talking about. So, the big idea or the most important thing in that formula is this expected family contribution because the lower your EFC, the more aid you get. It's based on many factors, but the most important ones, and everything I'm saying here and I'm about to say is a gross oversimplification. It is not comprehensive. Trust me, you don't want that. I wouldn't want to do that. I need to wrap up before 3 a.m. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, but generally, this is the important stuff. You, you will be way ahead of the, of the pack once you understand this stuff. So income, assets or savings, um, and, and other assets, your uh, parents' number of children in college at the same time, those are very important. That, uh, and so I know I'm going to get some questions on that. Feel free to ask them. I will get to them in a few minutes. Here is just a simple kind of um, two different scenarios. And... What this illustrates is that if you can figure out a way to lower your expected family contribution, so in this example, the EFC is $60,000, and the cost of attendance is also $60,000, therefore the family is showing need of zero. But if you can figure out how to lop that, uh, lop about $15,000 off from your EFC and, and drop it from sixty dollars to $45,000, now all of a sudden you're eligible for $15,000 a year, which is a 30% discount per year. So, that, so the real money adds up here. Um, do you, so let me just take a quick step of water here. Do, if you understand this so far, just this simple math, specifically the concept about if you lower your EFC, you'll increase your eligibility. If you understand that, uh, type, give me a, a Y in chat, Y for yes. So lower your EFC, the more need you're going to show, the more eligibility you'll have. And that means more money, just to just to connect the dots for you. So if you understand that type of why. Oh, got a question from. All right, I'm seeing a lot of whys here. Um, I saw Brett say that the book download is gone. Yeah, we we get, we had it up for the first ten minutes just to encourage people to show up on time. Um, so it's it's now. Uh, no longer available. All right, looks like you guys understand this. I got a yup from David. Um, apparently, why wasn't emphatic enough. All right, good. All right, so now let's talk a little bit more about EFC and drill down a little bit, especially when it comes to income and savings. So what I want to show you here are the percentages that the government uses of income and of savings. And I want you to note the difference here between parent savings and child savings because that is where the potential opportunities lie to lower your EFC. It's not so much with income. So income is penalized. And when I say penalized, it's sort of synonymous with 
boosting your EFC. So you remember you want to lower EFC, but if you're penalized, they raise the amount they expect you to pay. So income is penalized between 22 to 47%, which means all income, by the way. It's not just your taxable income. It's also untaxed income. But savings, which I want to focus on right now because that's more practical, parent savings are penalized. And I'll, I'll explain what that means. Are penalized uh, at 5% and change. Child savings are penalized far greater, far more, up to 25%. So if you've saved 100000 bucks, you are penalized $5,000 if it's in your name and 25000 bucks if it's in your kid's name, like a UTMA or a UJMA or a custodial account. Sometimes people ask about the 529. That is a college savings account that does count against you. Most schools will use the parent number, the 5% and change. Many schools, but not as many as, as, as the previous group, will penalize you greater than 5%, somewhere between 5 and 25%. It tends to be the, uh, excuse me, tends to be the private schools that have their own money and they can make their own rules. You know, the golden rule, he who has the gold can make the rules. So that is that is the story with 529s. But in terms of everything else that counts against you, it's really your everything's in the bank, even cash, uh, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. But then I, I told you before, there's some types of uh, accounts that don't count against you, and I'm going to be getting to those once we wrap this up. So my point here is in financial aid, it's not how much you have saved. It's where you have it saved. If it's in your name, you're penalized less. If it's in your kid's name, you're really severely punished. And there are some ways, some areas that you're not penalized at all. I mentioned income before, just to round out this discussion before we move on to some of the strategies. So income is penalized between 22 to 47%. It's a, it's a sliding scale. So if you look at 10,000 bucks, you're going to be penalized between 2200 and $4,700. And it's all income. I mentioned that before. Sometimes people gloss over that. So I just want to emphasize it here again. My rule of thumb is take whatever you're making and take 30% of it. So if you're making $200,000, 30% of that is 60000 bucks. That is your contribution. That is the expected contrib family contribution from income before you get into savings and all that other type of stuff. So so let's just uh, – I didn't make a slide about this, but let's say uh, that you have – an $80,000 expected family contribution because you make two hundred, dollars and you have some savings. You're not going to qualify for aid anywhere unless you have more than one kid in college. So what happens frequently, and this is a mistake that I want you to avoid, is parents have an EFC of $80,000 and they've slaved over the financial aid forms and they get nothing and they're just totally you know, pissed off. They're like, I'm never doing that again. That's crazy. So they never do the forms again. But the mistake or the self-sabotage that could happen is in two years when their second son or daughter goes to college, and let's say everything else stays the same, that $80,000 gets split between the two kids. So it's actually a $40,000 contribution for each kid. It's an expected family contribution. So now all of a sudden they're eligible for those overlapping years. So if you have more than one kid in college, if you have twins, triplets, you want to adopt a kid, uh, one of our kids maybe, then we, you know, <laughs> then feel free to uh, feel free to. That's not the right way, but you should definitely keep applying. That, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, another question we get a lot is, you know, what's the income cutoff? There isn't an income cutoff. You can search high and low all over these 
crazy interwebs and you won't find any magic ceiling that once you cross it, you're not going to be able to qualify for anything. And the reason is because there's all these other factors. But my general rule of thumb is, and I just demonstrated this to you, you know, if you make $200,000 in income, it gets really hard to get any type of money from a private college. The closer you get to 200, the harder it is if you have only one kid in school. But um, if you have two kids in school, you can get a lot close to 300 and still be eligible for need-based money. For state schools, either in the state, wherever you live, you know, like here in New York or out of the state, you have to have a super low income to get need-based aid. So that's need-based. Merit, which I haven't talked about yet, there's actually more merit money out there than there is need-based, and that's where you might be able to really clean up if you're strategic about where you apply to college. So if you're a high-income family, if you, you know, a lot of our families make $300 million, uh, $800 million or more, and we help, we help them, you know, primarily we're, we're coaching the kids on getting into the best colleges they can get in, but we also are very good at helping them free up money to, uh, you know, from either from the colleges directly or for other ways. There's a lot of merit money out there. Okay. Um, are you with me so far? Just let me know if this is helpful. Um, okay. And I see that there's some connection issues, Pearl. You're, you're helping people with that. Um, we're not having any tech difficulties. We have a very high speed access, but sometimes when when you have other stuff running in the background or other people in the house are on, you know, I don't know, Xbox, Fortnite, Facebook, Finsta, Insta, you know, whatever, that, that can make the, you know, but, but there's a reconnect button right at the top if you have any issues. Um, and Pearl's saying to shut down other browsers. Yes, yes, she is. Colleen is crying. I hope those are tears of joy, Colleen. You seem like a very joyful person from what I remember. Um, I don't know if it's my tan. Okay. Let's talk about assets. So uh, this is what counts against you. Cash, checking and savings, stocks and bonds, and 529s. I mentioned that before. But, but So the question about the 529 is not whether it penalizes you. It's how much. So I can't categorically say it's bad or good you know, friend or foe, whatever. But I, I do take issue with a lot of the marketing that the financial companies did for families that otherwise would have qualified had their eligibility for aid, who socked a lot of money into a 529 and then had their eligibility reduced or eliminated because of all that savings. Um, if, if income is at a such, at such a point where if it weren't for the assets, you'd be able to qualify, then you could be shooting yourself in the foot by saving money in a place that's going to count against you. That, that's my big issue, but it's, it's great for some people. It's not great for others. Okay, now we're getting into the good stuff. And by that, I mean, look at this good stuff right from the FAFSA. And what this is is a kind of a, an enumeration of what does not count against you. Not only what counts against you, but what doesn't count against you. No, I'm not going to read this thought about it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to summarize it, and I'm going to run through the 4.5, not 4, exemptions, or as I call it, the four horsemen of financial aid. Uh, the things that don't count against you. And, and by the way, the other way to look at this is if you mistakenly put this stuff on your financial aid forms, you will, you will lose eligibility. You will be shooting yourself in the foot. So these things are opportunities, but they're also landmines to avoid. 
All right. All retirement accounts are exempt. That means IRAs, uh, SEP, Simple, 401k, 403b, all those accounts are completely exempt. They should not be put on the, on the FAFSA at all. To round out that discussion, they are actually disclosable on another form, the CSS profile. You have to check with each school to figure out which forms you file. Um, but they supposedly don't count against you on that form either. So every college takes the FAFSA. I'm going to get into this a little bit more. Some schools take an additional form, but in, in both cases, retirement accounts don't penalize you. You just shouldn't disclose them at all on the FAFSA because the FAFSA asks, and I'll just go right back to this. Um, it's really hard to read this, but if you were looking at, um, I guess, number two investments, I'm sorry, number three investments do not include the home you live in, the value of life insurance, blah, blah, blah. That's where I'm pulling all these from. So if you say, oh, I have $500,000 worth of investments and you're including your $450,000 IRA, that's a mistake that will cost you money. So retirement accounts are not penalized. Those are exempt. Your primary residence is exempt on the FAFSA. And you may be saying, well, wait a minute. I thought in one of those slides before you said there's a problem with owning a, pro a home. There is for 400 colleges that take this other form called the CSS profile. So some, most colleges, most of the 4,000 colleges out there don't penalize you for a owning a home, but 400 of them do. So that's a partial exemption. Number three there, the third bullet point are annuities. If you put, if you own an annuity and you mistakenly put that down on the FAFSA, the main financial aid form, FAFSA, free application for federal student aid. I know I'm speaking quickly, but I want to respect everyone's time. Um, that will that will penalize you and cost you eligibility. On the other form, CSS profile, certain annuities are exempt and others are not exempt. So it really matters. So if a financial person, financial advisor approaches you and says, by the way, you could save some money for college if you buy an annuity from me, because <clears throat> they speak like that. And what you should say is, oh, well, does the college take the CSS profile or not? And he'll be like, what the hell are you talking about? I just want to sell you an annuity. So some annuities penalize you. Those are called non-retirement annuities. Those, those will penalize you, whereas retirement annuities will not penalize you. So you have to be just, you know, I'm just telling you this so you keep this in the back of your mind. It's a possible exemption. Then the fourth one is life insurance. Some, uh, virtually every college will not penalize you for owning life insurance with cash value. So those are the four exemptions, and the, and the .5 pertains to business owners, which you're just going to have to wait a few minutes for before I get into them. So it's retirement accounts, primary residence, annuities, and life insurance. And I'm sure we're getting questions on that. Um, but, again, I will get to them. I just want to get through the meat of the presentation. So if you are going to shelter your assets, notice how I didn't say hide, because that's sleazy. I want to give you a couple of examples and a warning. So if you have $250,000 in included assets, meaning stuff that counts against you, but you reposition it, maybe you use annuities and insurance or something else, you will then save at least $14,000, which is 5% change uh, in eligibility per year, just because you're moving from one bad bucket to a good bucket for financial aid purposes. However, this is our faceless legal advisor. You have to be 
really careful about really everything. First of all, this doesn't work for everyone. I can't, you know, none of the stuff I'm saying works across the board categorically for everyone. So that's what my lawyer here wanted uh, to, to remind me about. And the second thing is you have to look at all the potential negative consequences, which even if this could work for you, the negative consequences or considerations will drag on the total return on investment you would get. So I'll explain that. You may, but you may be wondering, okay, you know, it sounds kind of weird. Is this even kosher to, to do? So I brought in our, our rabbi. His name is Shlomo to answer that question. Um, he was in the middle of, I don't know, teaching class to those kids behind him. Um, he reminded me, and I want to pass this on to you, that um, this is kosher just the same way as taking a tax deduction is kosher. You don't have to. I mean, you can choose whether or not to take a tax deduction, but it's been, you know, a uh, from the Supreme Court, it's been agreed upon for centuries, uh, maybe not quite a century, uh, quite centuries, but, but decades, that it's not unpatriotic or anything bad to take a deduction or take as many deductions as you can on your tax return in order to minimize your tax burden. So too is the, it's just as kosher to avoid overpaying for college. You know, to me, to get as, as much of a discount as you're entitled to. Um, another similar sort of regulatory body is Medicaid. You know, if you have a senior citizen parent who has a bunch of assets in their name, you may be thinking about, you may have already done this, you have gone to an attorney to move money out of their names in order for your senior citizen parent to qualify for more health benefits. Well, we do the same thing in financial aid. We're, we're, we could we use different tools, but we move money around to try to qualify for more education benefits. So it's really a, an analogy there. And this is, I think this was an ad from an old Morgan Stanley um, campaign. You must pay taxes, but there's no law that says you got to leave a tip. Right? So don't overpay on your tax returns, which is not what this is about. Same thing with college. Don't overpay for college. You don't have to. That's straight from the rabbi. So regular strategies that, that we see a lot in our office. I mean, like I said, it's not every kid and, and family, but sometimes um, moving money of kids' names into accounts that don't count against you, the ones I mentioned before, sometimes that can really pay off. Uh, sometimes being strategic and smart about using a mortgage or a home equity line can really pay off because the colleges are penalizing you anyway, so you might as well use it and, and possibly improve your eligibility. You probably have a handful of clients each year that, you know, no more than four or five that do that consider that type of strategy. And then, you know, I mentioned before, insurance and annuities seem to work a lot. But again, you've got to be aware of the pitfalls. You know, I, I told you before, I don't know if you're just joining, but I, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't sell these types of um, investments. I used to be in-house counsel to a brokerage firm in the 90s. I saw a lot of really, you know, shady stuff going on. Uh, since then, I've probably seen like four or five products that I would call suitable I mean, they don't, you know, they don't hold your money and have all these crazy fees since then. But my point is you have to be not just swayed by the allure of, you know, saving money on tuition, but you have to understand also what the potential negatives are too. Pros and cons include if you're going to sell something, what are the tax consequences? If you're going to sell a 529, there might be a penalty. It could be a couple hundred bucks. It could be a few thousand dollars. It really depends on, on your own situation. Once you're putting your money into one of these types of accounts that's a, that are exempt, um, some of them lock you up for 12 months, which to me doesn't seem that bad, like a CD. Others, it could be seven years, which to me is awful. 
but you know that's just me it, you, your own situation is you know unique to your, to yourself but you have to ask yourself these questions you know what's the suitability uh, in, in general of what's being recommended to you you've got to be very skeptical about anyone offering you something so yeah I'm just trying to go through some of the, the common considerations and um, last if you're just applying to a bunch of schools like state schools that don't have money then you know and then rearranging your money and putting it in different buckets and selling it and buying stuff or whatever is like rearranging you know uh, deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not going to do you any good. It's just an exercise in futility. So that that's a big factor also. All right, are you guys uh, finding this helpful so far? I'm trying to give you a lot of information in a very short period of time. Let me just take a quick drink of water here and then let me know in chat uh, with a, another one of those letter Y's and. Yeah, I see some good questions here that I'm going to get to. Uh, hello, Pinchy. Uh, Taryn had a good question. Julie. All right, Margo saying yes. Julie has a good question. Ron says yes. Pinchy. Annuities are tricky. Any specific annuity? Yeah. Um, all right, everyone's saying yes, though. <coughs> I am not, I'm not being coy. I have no idea what specific annuities um, work. Um, the reason I'm saying that is because I'm not, even if I did, I wouldn't tell you because I'm not a financial advisor. I don't want to, you know, start giving investment advice because um, I'm not regulated, you know, that way. <clears throat> but um, I've seen a lot of bad ones, but I've seen some good ones that will only um, require you to lock your money up for 12 months. And, I, you know, I referred all my clients to my friend Harry who's in, in my office in Jericho. Um, and he's, he's the one to talk to about that stuff. So, um, if anyone wants information at the end of this, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you how you can uh, book some time with me to talk about your situation. That's certainly one of the things people ask me about all the time. Let's get into the FAFSA. Okay, so so um, every college <coughs> in the country, if you want money from them, requires the FAFSA, and some of them, not all, require you to file a FAFSA, which is the Free Application for Federal Student Aid FAFSA. Some people say FAFSA. They are not right. They are dumb, unless you say that. Everyone else besides you, dumb. It's FAFSA, Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Clearly, I have issues. I'm crotchety. But um, anyway, some colleges want you to complete financial aid forms to also be considered for merit-based aid, too. So like NYU is, is, a, is an example. They want you to do the forms even if they're um, going to laugh at you, which which they tend to do. They're one of the stingiest colleges out there. Uh, it's about 102 questions. It's primarily used to give federal funds to low-income families, meaning $50,000, $60,000 max. And sometimes we see those families not getting everything they should get. It's relatively straightforward on its face when you're doing it. However, I showed you that uh, schematic before. There's 1,100 pages of regulations behind the FAFSA, um, every year, there seems to be some kind of glitch. We had a Pearl had a nightmare last year with um, it pulling information in, incorrect information in from the IRS website. So it's just not as easy as it can't. It's not always as easy as it, as, it, as it appears. And I showed you this before. That's the regulatory scheme behind the easy form. Now, there's another form, and this again, I'm still in the gross oversimplification mode here. You'll thank me. The CSS profile is, is used by about 400 or so colleges in addition to, not in lieu of, but in addition to the FAFSA. So you have to know what forms uh, each college requires, and that's another mistake that people make a lot is they don't 
realize you know, what's what's required, how to get the money, or when. That's another mistake. They file late. So it's about 200 questions. It's um, is it Pearl? Is it 23 pages? Do you know? I, th I think it's more. I, it's at least 23 pages. It's like a small phone book. If you print it out, it's a lot. And it's used primarily by colleges that have their own institutional endowments for their funds. It's not federal money. It's, it's really more from colleges that have large endowments, mostly private colleges. And it is not, you know, the, the FAFSA is deceptively straightforward looking. The, the, the profile is not. So you won't be fooled that way. And it's, it's much more invasive because it counts more stuff against you, which I mentioned uh, a few slides ago. Your annuities don't aren't all exempt, and you disclose your retirement accounts on the on the profile. And business owners have a lot more disclosures. This is just one screenshot. Um, I don't know how well this is going to show up on your screen, but this these are a bunch of questions that I just want to read a couple to you from the CSS profile. Here we go. Uh, enter the amount your parents have in their cash savings and checking accounts as of today. Enter the total value of your parents' assets held in the names of your the students, brothers and sisters who are under age 19 and not college students. What is the total current market value of your parents' investments? Do not include your blah, 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 because um, they ask for that later. What do your parents owe on their investments? What is the current market value of your parents' home? What do your parents owe on their home? What year is the purchase? What is the purchase price? Uh, what do you notice? Um, you know, so on and so forth. So what do you notice about this? Who's paying attention? Who's supposed to be filling out this form? Just type it in chat. I'm going to take one more sip. Right? We're talking, I'm, I'm talking to you at parent to parent about filling out these forms. But when you look at the profile, the complicated form, guess who fills it out? I'll wait. Who's sharp? Yeah, Will. Correct. Jerry, Ruth, Rick, Margo, yeah, you're all right. Yeah, can you imagine tell, you know, telling your kids, well, this is how much I have saved. Um, yeah, there's another question. There's a lot of other questions, like how much do your parents think that they can afford for one year? Do you anticipate any help from friends or family paying for college? Here's how I answer that one. Ready? I'm an orphan. No, you have to. You have to say, don't don't give away the store. If so, but don't vaguely promise. Yeah, you know, I got I got money for the kid. Don't worry about it. To me, that's that doesn't rise to the level of anticipated help. That it's not a check that cleared. So I, I say no to all those. How much can you afford? Pearl always puts like you know whatever the expected family contribution is from the FAFs or maybe less. You know, don't put zero, but don't put like fifty thousand dollars. Do like ten grand or something. They just not, those those questions are just designed to trap you. All right, so now let's talk about a few more mistakes, and there's two types of mistakes. There are mistakes of omission and mistakes of commission, commission and omission. So, a mis you know, an omission is leaving out something um, or not knowing something, and a mistake of commission is doing something actively. So th these are just a couple. I've, I've already talked about some of these. Oversharing, big mistake not only on uh, social media and um, dinner conversations sometimes, but it's also in the, uh, in the financial, aid, financial aid forms. You know, if you put down stuff, you, I, I mentioned this already, if when you're writing, uh, filling out the form, the field having your investments and you include stuff that you shouldn't include, like your retirement accounts, it's not because, it's not a dumb mistake, by the way. It's an easy mistake to make. We have, uh, I told you, a bunch of accountants and financial advisors and lawyers and people who are very good at paperwork who are afraid that they'll screw this up or who actually have screwed this up when they didn't use us. And, you know, they, they lost money because of that. So 
that's an example of, of uh, oversharing information that shouldn't go on there. You can um, very easily blow a deadline because you can look at the FAFSA and it'll say, hey, your deadline is, well, maybe not hey, but your deadline is June 30th, but the college financial aid priority deadline, probably the previous November or December or February or something like that. So you need to uh, look at each college's priority deadline and they're not easy to find on the websites. So that's, that's a big mistake that people make. Um, another one, this is really two mistakes in one, but it's the same type of mistake, just getting stuff wrong in terms of date of birth or social security numbers. You know, a lot of times when Pearl's doing all these financial aid forms, she's, she's always pulling information right from the uh, tax return. And sometimes it gets spit back after she files from the Department of Education. And they'll say that you, know, you have, you know, the social security number doesn't match up or something like that. And she'll go back and, and check the uh, the tax return, and she entered everything incorrectly. The problem is that the accountant has been using the wrong social security number for years. So you have to really be hyper vigilant and spazzy about checking everything: dates of birth, social security numbers, mixing up kids stuff and parents stuff because the forms bop around. That's another mistake that people make. Um, a lot of times they don't know what forms to file. That information is also on each college's website. You've got to be very vigilant about that. Just understand that even little clerical errors can have huge negative money-losing consequences. Even the innocuous mistakes, don't blow them off. Don't be, you know, in, in the rest of life, you know, who cares if you if you don't make your bed in the morning or you, you know, you make a right on red a little too late without a camera around or something. But if financial aid even little mistakes can literally cost tens of thousands of dollars. So you've got to be, you can't do these forms at the last minute. You can't rush through them. You've got to be very precise. All right. Um, two years ago, there was a change about uh, the look back period for the FAFSA. And when I say look back, I'm talking about income right now. So now if you have someone graduate 2019, the income that counts that's going to form the basis of your financial aid forms is is what they call prior prior or, or two years ago, which is 2017. So your tax returns from 17 count for 2019 graduates. And if you have someone graduating 2020, then it's your 2018 tax returns. You get it. And I said this before, the look back applies to income, does not apply to the rest of the form, including where you have savings. So what these changes mean for you is that if you are sheltering money, if you're moving money around and you're going to sell stuff and you're going to possibly um, have tax consequences that are going to show up on your tax return, you want to do it before that base year. So you want to do it before the you know two years before. So a lot of times people say, well, you know, I have a sophomore. I feel like I'm doing things kind of early. And I'll say, you're really not that early for two reasons. Number one, if you have any stuff that's going to flow through to your tax returns, the, the best year to take care of it is before you have to disclose it on your base year. And the second thing is, frankly, um, once your kid hits high school, they're starting to create a body of work that's in terms of extracurricular activities and classes taken and summer stuff and you know everything else that will ultimately be judged by the time they are seniors. But you may not have your meeting with your guidance counselor in high school until like the end of your sophomore year, the beginning of your junior year. So two years after you've created, you've, been, you've begun creating a body of work and made choices and decisions that will have ramifications when you're being judged by an admissions officer. So it's it's really, to me, never, it's not too early if you have a ninth grader or a 10th grader um, and 11th grader, you still have plenty of time in most cases, but the later you wait, the fewer options you have. 
So, so yeah, I, I think if you get this stuff done before you uh, your base year, you want to have a paper trail. And I mentioned this the body of work starts in ninth grade or even earlier. Okay. Now we're going to talk about merit money. <clears throat> There's more. I mentioned this before. There's more merit money than need-based money. My recommendation is, or, or just observation, you can decide what to do with this um, or not to do with this, is apply to schools that are not only these reach dream schools that you have to beg, borrow, and scratch and claw your way into, but schools where they're going to want you. So if you look at uh, all the kids who are, who are admitted the previous year at a given school and you look at their median scores and grades, and you know you can do the math and figure out based on the number of kids who are admitted how you compare. If you're in the top 25% or better against that cohort, you have a really good chance not only getting in but getting money from them. And it's okay to be the big fish in a, in a small pond, particularly if you're going to go to grad school later. You know, we're more likely to be uh, have a higher GPA as a big fish. You definitely have a better shot of getting money at a school that you were lucky to get into, and so forth. So don't think of it as settling if you're uh, if there are any kids watching this. Think of it as being smart and strategic and playing the long game, not the short game, not the rear window sticker bragging rights game. Playing the long game. Okay. Um, and I think it's a great idea to apply to colleges that compete with each other because then instead of you chasing the schools around, you can kind of engineer things so they do it to you. And understand, I mentioned this a couple times, but I'm repeating it again, private schools tend to be more generous. All right, now let's get into a negotiation case study. This is Rick. Rick usually doesn't dress like this. He owns a, a Wings restaurant in Port Washington right near us. I recommend the garlic, uh, honey garlic. And this was, you know, a while ago. This is uh, six years ago, I think. And he initially received a pretty good offer from his daughter's uh, first choice college, which is kind of hard to see, um, 23000 bucks and change. I want, uh, but that wasn't enough for him. He needed more money. The school was, I mean, it's even more expensive now, but he wanted more money. So I'm going to walk you through generally how to negotiate, and then I'm going to do the case study. So the first of all, a lot of people think, oh, I didn't even know that I could ask for more money. The answer is, yeah, you can. Uh, so just understand that. If you don't ask, you don't get. You know, The, the uh, sports cliches, you miss 100% of the shots you never take. That was supposedly said by Wayne Gretzky. Um, so always ask for more money. There's really no downside to do that. It really helps if you have other offers from schools that compete with the school in question that you want more money from. That's a great great uh, leverage to, to have. If you have information they don't already know, like if you were to say something like, you know, we need more money because we live in uh, suburban Long Island and it's very expensive. They know. They know it's expensive. That's not new information. They didn't give you the first time. They're just going to roll their eyes and say, sorry, no. Um Always be on the same side of the table, not across the table. It's not really a negotiation, even that's what I call it. It's really more of an appeal. You want to be non-adversarial and be very uh, borderline obsequious. Think Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. Don't be entitled. Be polite. And you need to include all stakeholders. So here's what I mean by that. So in Rick's case, his daughter's first choice was USC. And by that, I mean Southern Cal. I don't mean new USC, which is... It's not new, but it somehow became USC, um, Southern uh, South Carolina University of Southern California, the Trojans, if you will, not the Gamecocks. 
Trojans. So many jokes that I'm twisting myself into knots to not to not say. Must control self. Okay. So um, so Alexis, uh, when she was a junior and we were starting to work together in the beginning of her junior year, I said to Rick, you know, uh, you should consider applying to some schools that USC competes with. And he said, well, um, she doesn't really want to go anywhere else in California. And I said, no, no, I mean, you know, she's a, she was applying as a communications major. So I said, you know, Syracuse has a great communications program, you know, Newhouse and other few other schools. Let's apply to some of those schools too, just to try to solicit an offer from them. So we have that in our hip pocket because I think you'll do pretty well, you know, based on her grades and scores and all that. So that's what happened. He, uh, USC had um, gave a nice offer, but, but Alexis got offers from these two other schools. So we showed USC these two other offers and we wrote a letter, which I will um, outline to you. And this is exactly what happened. Crickets, nothing happened. There was a big problem. <clears throat> and this went on, this dragged on. What was it? Rick forgot to include all stakeholders. So the gist of the letter is, thank you very much for your very generous offer. This, if this is Alexis's top choice school. She's, she'd be thrilled to go there. However, I'm very concerned about college costs. I'm concerned about my ability to be able to afford to send her there. And, you know, we're being forced to consider these other schools that frankly came in with much better financial aid offers. So if there's any way, and I'm attached, so we, we show them the offers. If there's any way at all that you could possibly either meet or even exceed these other offers, then I can assure you that we'll rush in our housing department. The problem was, I mean, that's really the gist of it. The problem was he didn't remember, and I caught him on video so I can prove this. He didn't remember that I had told him that he needs to also send the letter to admissions, not only to financial aid, but to admissions, because admissions is uh, are not the bean counters that financial aid officers are. Admissions cares about the ratio of kids who are admitted who actually show up. It's called the yield. And if it takes a few extra bucks to get a kid to come, uh, then they may loosen the purse strings a little bit. So that is that was what he forgot to do. So he quickly, once he realized this, because I pointed out to him in a very blunt way, um, he rushed the same letter that he had sent previously only to financial aid and he rushed it to admissions and they called him, I think the same day, if I remember the story right. And they said, Hey, uh, we didn't know about this, you know, to tell me, you know, give us some more detail. And then they said, well, who are you working with in financial aid? And Rick said, I don't know. You know, I can't get to anyone. They said, Oh no, you're work you're probably with the wrong person. I'm going to get, I'm going to escalate this. and You're going to talk to the right guy. So lo and behold, Rick got a phone call either that day or the next day from the right person, in the financial aid office who asked him a few questions, mostly having to do with the value of his house and um, the other offers from the other schools. And they quickly revised the offer and they moved it from, $23,000 to $53,000 and change, which was an increase of $30,000 for that year. And it continued for each of the other uh, three years after this. So, so there was, you know, like $120,000 swing um, just from negotiating. So it really helps to have additional offers. Okay. Business owners. This is, uh, this is, just a couple of slides. If you own a business, you want to pay attention because there's another loophole that I'm going to illustrate by telling you a story. Business owners are treated differently in the financial aid forms. There are more disclosures, but there's also some advantages. So um, here's a story about Tina who actually lives in our 
district. And she called me um, after a lot of this had happened, which was, which usually is not so helpful because I, my, my hands are kind of tied once the, once the die is cast. I think I just mixed some metaphors there. Um, so her daughter got into her, her top choice school, which is NYU, which is pretty stingy, but she also got into some other private schools, but she received zero across the board. And she thought something was wrong. I said, well, I, you know, I don't know, you know, what you did. I, I can't, I don't even think I can help you at this point. She said, you know, I'll just pay you to come look at my forms. I really feel like I made a mistake. So we sat down and I actually saw it right away. So I asked her two questions. I said, one, um, so what percentage of the business do you own? She was, I think, 50-50 with her husband, Jeff. I asked her how many employees she had. And she told me, you know, they're a pretty big firm. They have all this equipment. They do excavation work for the county. But they had like, you know, maybe 20, 18, 20, 22 employees. I said, okay. Um, what I knew is this exemption right here, which I know you can't read, so I blew it up here. Business value does not include the value of a small business if your family owns and controls more than 50% and has 100 or fewer employees. That's the important part. Her business uh, uh, employed 20-ish employees. She she took a value when she did the forms based off of her financial statements, which totally makes sense, but not in the bizarre world of financial aid. So she uh, was able to, uh, I, I was able to say, you know, listen, the value of your business is really zero, not the artificially high amount that you put on your forms. So what happened next was um, we, meaning Pearl, corrected her financial aid forms and resubmitted them. And I wrote an appeal explaining all this type of stuff and NYU reevaluated it. And she got 25 grand from NYU per year. So, so far, unless we, we saw her a few months ago, it's 75,000 bucks that she is up. So remember that if you're self-employed, the value of your business is almost always zero. And if you employ more than 100 people, but you're firing a bunch of people tomorrow, don't mention my name. Okay, I'm gonna wrap up here by talking about divorced and separated families. Uh, understand that there's one appropriate family member, um, parent, to, to file a FAFSA, and that is the custodial parent. It is not the non-custodial parent. And the custodial is not necessarily the parent who takes the tax deduction, who declares the kid as a dependent on tax returns, two totally separate things. There's Department of Education rules and there's IRS rules, totally separate. Now, to round out the discussion, there are some CSS profile colleges, remember there's 400 colleges that take the CSS profile, a chunk of them, maybe a third, maybe more, require the non-custodial parent to also fill out a, uh, a profile and disclose their information. This changes, it changes, like every year, we, there's new changes about not just the profile, but all these forms. So, uh, so from year to year, one school may require or, or not require it. And the second thing is, um, they, I, I don't think that they count the non-custodial parent dollar for dollar the same way they count the custodial parent. Uh, so it's just, it's, you're not dead in the water if you have uh, a non-custodial parent who makes a lot more money and you have to disclose that uh, or that non-custodial parent has to fill out the forms and submit them to the, uh, to the college. Not necessarily game over at that point. So another question we get sometimes is, well, what happens if, um, the, the, you know, the, the ex husband, the dad, it's always a deadbeat dad, uh, is not going to cooperate with, you know, with, with, um, filling out the forms. Then you tell the financial aid office and nine times out of 10, they'll say, okay, just sign this, you know, affidavit of non cooperation or something. And, uh, you don't have to, uh, disclose that information. 
and occasionally some colleges will say, you know what, we need his information. Tell him that we can't uh, evaluate your your son or your daughter for financial aid unless we have his, his information. So it's a case by case thing, it's a school by school thing. Just understand, if nothing else, that most of the time it's the um, it's the if you have any flexibility, you can always go with a lower income and lower asset family member if uh, if that's the 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 uh, parent that the kid resides with the majority of time. It doesn't matter who declares the kid on tax returns. It's really about the domicile of the kid, where the kid lives 50% or more of the time. So if you have flexibility, occasionally we see that with, with our clients. Not always, but occasionally. So at this point, um, we're wrapping up here, and um, I think, you know, I'm going to get to the questions right now, but I think I've given you sort of a high-level, you know, one-on-one -on -one level uh, understanding of how to get more money from colleges and a lot of pitfalls to look out for. And you really have two choices, you know. So, so there are some current clients who are on this presentation, but if you're not a client and you're, you're thinking about all this stuff, I think you have a leg up to be able to implement some of the advice that I've, I've given you and you already know a lot more than a lot of accountants and certainly guidance counselors. Um, but you may want some help. The choices are you can either do it on your own, just kind of wing it, or you can use an expert to guide you with a tested and proven system that's been around for you know, uh, we've been doing this 18 years. Um, if you have questions about, you know, can I get any scholarships or financial aid? Is it even possible? Am I even looking at the right colleges? Can my son or daughter even get in anywhere decent? Or you know, sometimes it's, you know, if you're really honest, I don't even know the right questions to ask. I'm so overwhelmed. Then what I can offer you is, and I see that Pearl already put this offer up, um, you are more than welcome to take me up on my offer to waive our normal fee of 249 bucks and uh, do a phone call with me for what we call a college strategy session. I have cut back very severely on the amount of spots that I make available just because we were just overwhelmed with referrals and uh, just growing, growing our business, but I still want to be able to help people you know, without charging them. So as of now, we're making five spots available per, per week. Um, instead of paying 249 bucks, you can, you can avoid that. And the gist of the college strategy session is really to have a candid conversation about whether there's any hope for you, whether we can help you or not, and, and to see if we're potentially a good fit. You don't have to make a decision. There's nothing to buy. It's, I just like to keep it very casual and blunt and, and honest. And, you know, we, we can help everyone. Uh, but I don't want you to feel like there's any pressure. The only catch is that if I can't help you, I'm going to tell you that. You know, and, and that's probably one out of three-ish clients, uh, potential clients that that happens to. Um, you know, so, sometimes people are very skeptical. Uh, Scott Sanders said uh, he was so, you know, he was, <laughs> he was saying I was nonchalant um, that he was he thought that it might be a, a scam. And I told him what he ended up saying was that uh, his son went to GW. This is a long time ago. Um, on money is 100% from my my involvement and he really liked it when I told him I get my clients five times the amount in their investment with me. That's return on investment and I love hearing stuff like that. So that was very cool. Uh, I told you before we help kids get into, you know, any type of school, including MIT. This is a text from a Harvard client. This is a um, girl who got into Yale. She was, you know, I couldn't have done any of, any of your help on my application. But I said before, we can't help everyone. Here's who. This may be offensive. I'm sorry. Here's who we can't help. We can't help these types of moms. What are these called? 
Right. Helicopter moms. Don't book if you're a helicopter or know-it-all parent. I just don't want to butt heads with you. It's going to happen. Uh, if you have a, an apathetic or uncoachable kid, you know, a little, little entitled or whatever, please, that's, you know, there's other college advisors that will take you. I, I just don't want to deal with that. I'm sorry. I don't mean to essentially but I am. And I don't want parents who don't understand the concept of return on investment, meaning we're not, you know, we're not low cost. We're not El Cheapo. We're not super expensive, but we're not, you know, we're, we're right in the middle. We, 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 we charge anywhere from 3000 to more than $15,000 for our services, depending on what families get from us. And it could be, you know, just help with finances. It could be help with college advising. We also do test prep. We also do career and majors advising. And there's a few other things, but we charge, we charge for it because the value that we deliver. So anyone doesn't understand that concept of return on investment, meaning you get what you pay for, then we don't really want them. And frankly, even though we are expensive, we have a lot of low income families who, or, or people who come up with the money because they realize how important this is. It's kind of like if you need an operation, you know, and you were told you need to come up with 10 grand or you need to get out of jail. You need to come up with 10 grand to post bail. You find a way to do it, right? I think that, you know, figuring out what the hell you want to do with the rest of your life and going to college and graduating without debt is a very important thing too. And that's, you know, the, the results that we're able to get. I shared some of those with you. I think that's why, you know, it's, it's important to understand the value of the advice we, we offer. But we're definitely not right for everyone. So if we're not right for you, that's fine. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just trying to state the case for us. Services include help with financial aid and scholarships, doing the forms, test prep, negotiating financial aid awards, college essay advising, majors and careers, resume enhancement, meaning marketing, meaning improving your, your position to get in, uh, helping with the college applications. We do all kinds of boot camps for clients and a lot more. And if you want to talk about it, please go ahead and book us. My closing deep thoughts are all the stuff when you step back and you think about it, it can make the difference between affording your kid's dream college versus letting her down and saying, I can't send you to the school that you deserve. And just be very careful about this, whether you use us or not, to understand that one little mistake can cost you literally thousands in lost aid that you deserved. And we represent, in my opinion, in Pearls, a, an investment in college success without the stress. That's, that's our whole thing. And my uh, last testimony that I'll share is from a client of mine from a long time ago, Beth uh, Sova, who's now out in Houston, Texas. And this made me think, I think this is the real business that we're in. Uh, from the moment I walked into your office, I felt an enormous weight was lifted off my shoulders. Thank you for all that you've done to my precious girl. So I really appreciate, Pearl and I really appreciate um, hearing things like this. Much more rewarding than the money and you know that we make from this business the emotional capital thank you very much for attending this presentation i am now going to get into my questions okay pearl you have questions posted for me i do and they're in order you can start let's go from top to bottom okay cool all right so <clears throat> last last sips okay um, Pearl says something vulgar to me. I'm not going to print that. Thank you, Pearl. Uh, are 529 plans in different child's name all added together? The answer is yes. The 529 on the FAFSA is considered a parent asset 
So if you're the if you're the custodian, you are the custodian for all of your kids. And what that means is that um, because you can switch beneficiaries between you know the, the, the kids, between and among the kids, uh, the colleges know that. So that's why you have to list them all. All right, I'm gonna put on my old glasses here. How do families with, with five hundred thousand income get anything from an elite school? Okay, well that's that's interesting. So most of the elite schools, like Ivy's and all that, are need based and not merit based. Ivy League, Ivy League colleges ostensibly do not give out um, merit based scholarships. Now, I made this throwaway comment before: the colleges can do whatever they want, and we've seen that happen. But it's very unusual; it's not, it's not even worth talking about. But they can figure out. You know, if a kid's an athlete. Somehow they're going to show more need than if they weren't an athlete compared to another kid whose family may have the same income and all that. So if you make a lot of money, your best bet, and you want to save money on college, your best bet is not the elite schools. I'll, I'll just be very um, blunt. Uh, if income is 201, parents are 65, would that help to get a discount? That's from Julia. Yeah, that does help. You know, the older you are, the more eligible you are. So that Age is one of those factors. That's why I highlighted it for you. That's a very good question. Cherry, do you recommend spending down the 520 first for those who are not eligible for any aid? Um, well, if that's going to make you more eligible, then that's definitely something you should look at. I would stop short of making a recommendation here. But listen, you have the 520, 520 to pay for college, so why not use it? You know, so I, th I think above all, it's, uh, that's what it's there for. But if your income is at such a point where um, if you didn't have the 529, 529 then you would otherwise qualify, then yeah, I think I think I would do that. I would spend it down quickly or, or maybe look at even selling it. Um, all right, Terry, 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 my eyes are getting bleary here. Uh, are, is there any consideration for medical hardship? So in terms of um, when I was talking about appealing, I said if you can introduce new information to a college on appeal for them to consider, they may adjust your award. And a medical hardship falls squarely in the category of new information that they don't, they couldn't possibly know about from the financial aid form. So in other words, what you'd say is, look, I know our income looks one way, and in the formulas, we appear to be eligible. However, we had all these other expenses that you couldn't possibly know about because of unreimbursed you know, medical expenses or you know whatever. You know, could you please take another look at my my file, my eligibility. So that, that is absolutely in that category. Um, David, is there a real-life example? Pearl, I don't know what that means. I think I did give a bunch of real-life examples. Um, is a child CD exempt? No, not at all. Anything in a child's name counts against you even worse. Um, Julie, are you going to get the business owners? <laughs> Pearl, I did. No. What? You're just putting them in? Can you edit them? Sure. All right. Um, Will, uh, what if there's been a marked reduction in income from the eligibility? She wasn't nice? Is that what you're saying? All right. Yes. She, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, can't, can't please everyone. Feel, feel free to not as another watch if you're crotchety. Um, what, what, if, what if there's been, a, okay, so Will, this is a very good one. What if there's been a marked reduction in income from the eligibility for FAFSA and the year the kid starts college? So that is another classic example of an appealable bit of new information that I was talking about, just like the medical expenses. They couldn't possibly know. So in other words, the argument could be, look, I know we looked one way. So, so this year, for example, in, um, uh, I guess, April, I wrote probably 100 letters of appeal. Hundred and, I stopped counting after like 103. Uh, and the um, many of them were kind of along the lines of, okay, 
I know that you're looking at my tax return from 2016, but I was actually laid off from work or my business, you know, went south at the end of that year. Uh, and since then I've been making low or little or no income. And that's not reflected on the financial aid forms, but that's my reality. So that was something that happened in the, in the not so distant past. Can you possibly take another look at my eligibility? And, and frequently colleges will say, okay, send us proof. If you were pink slipped, you know, uh, if you have, you have a severance agreement or something like that, uh, that, that is a very, very real appealable issue. And you should definitely bring that up if you, if you have that scenario. So thank you for that question. Um, Dennis, what are the state penalties for spending down a 529 for private high school tuition? I don't think there are any at this point that I've seen. Um, cause the 529, you know, you get a, you get a deduction off of your federal taxes. You might get a deduction off your state taxes, depending on what state you're in. But I don't know so far that I've seen, I haven't seen anything about, about that. But that's a very interesting question to me. Thank you for that one. I wish I could give you a better answer. Um, Julie, FAFSA isn't the issue. It's the CSS for those who seek the top schools. Okay, that's not really a question, Pearl. She would edit Pearl, uh, but you, but she's right. Um, David, is there a way to prevent our kids from seeing our, <laughs> seeing our financial? No response. No. Just gnashing your teeth. Okay. Um, David, is there a way to present prevent our kids from seeing our financial information on the financial aid forms? Yes. Don't let them do it. <laughs> they, they don't. You know, most kids will never know what the hell you're writing, what, what you're filling out. So you you do everything. That's, that's what I recommend, actually. Um, David, public schools don't require CSS. I don't remember ever seeing a CSS when I applied for FAFSA when I went to college. Yeah, don't think this is the same as when you went to college. Um, it's definitely different. But um, there are some, very few, but there are some, there are some, Pearl. Okay, there's some CSS profile school. There are some state schools like UVA, University of Michigan, uh, North Carolina, and there's probably a few others Correct. that are state schools that do require the CSS profile. The bottom line is you got to check with each school. Absolutely. And it changes from year. And it can change from year to year. Okay. David, which schools require the CSS? That is a school by school. You know, you can look on the College Board website, um, and you know, you'll, you'll ultimately get to a list of schools that require the CSS profile. It's, it's several hundred. Katie, but not all private schools. That's important to know. Davis, okay, Pearl. Um, I've heard the filing as head of household can make life difficult with FAFSA. Is that true? Um, that is probably not true, right, Pearl? It depends, it depends on the situation. Depends, yeah, that's an advanced level of question. Yeah, it, it, it's like, is the 529 good or bad? It can be good, it can be bad. Kevin, is a state school, none of this matters? State schools give money, it's just they give federal money for low-income families, and they give merit money for a high, for a qualified out-of-state kids, too. They'd rather attract, they'd rather give five or 10,000 bucks off to an out-of-state kid who's going to class up their, um, their rankings, you know, their grades and their scores. Uh, Mary Lou, my son's a freshman this coming September. Can I start sheltering now? Yeah, I think the sooner you do it, the better. You want to keep it off. So if he's going to graduate in, I guess, 20, 2021, it sounds like, your base year is 2019. So this is the year to make some moves if they're going to be some tax consequences because they won't appear on your 2019 so classes. Going to be a freshman this coming. Oh, that could be in college. Okay, got it. Sure. I mean, you, you can shelter for the following year because uh, you reapply for financial aid every year. Yeah, I just automatically assume as a freshman in high school. Okay. 
uh, run, does Ivy League also have these merit funds? They don't call them merit funds. They claim they don't give merit funds, but we've seen them give merit funds. Um, they're not supposed to, though. Gary, the problem is that it seems that every school, even the ones that are not considered to be prestigious, report average GPA of 3.8 and median 50% test scores, blah, blah, blah. Apparently, I'm the only one whose kid isn't a genius. That's right. You have a, uh, you should give your kid a special test. Um, now, you're just looking probably at the, at the wrong schools, but there's a lot of great inflation for GPA. One, one of my jokes that I said, I say all the time, I said today in the office, is that it seems like everyone applying to college is a leader. There are no followers applying to college. <laughs> but, um, you know, you, you have to be very, you have to look outside the top 30 colleges. That's, that's my suspicion of what, what you're doing. Um, Julie, but the 100-employee rule doesn't apply to CSS schools, does it? Right, that is correct. However, I gave that case study of Tina, who um, got more money from NYU and a bunch of other schools. They are CSS profile schools. So in my experience, um, the value of a – the way it's supposed to work in terms of how a CSS profile school looks at a business value is they will take a certain amount and discount it, and then they'll go ahead and use the 5%. So the problem is that there's no published formula. So at, at a recent conference that I was at, I actually asked someone about that uh, specific scenario too. I said, so let's say your business is worth $200,000. How much are they going to write down that value before they assess the parent um, contribution of 5%, and they said, eh, you know, usually somewhere around, blah, blah, they have a straight answer. But my, my point is that almost all the time, the value of a business should be either zero or very low, and it's not going to count against you unless you inflate it artificially. So um, good catch on that one. Uh, Lisa, what would be considered a competing school with Wash U? So um, Wash U, you know, is one of these elite Midwestern private colleges, just so you can look at some of those other schools, like I don't know, Chicago or something. But they also compete with you know a lot of schools on the East Coast that are that are similar. Um, you know, if you're applying as a as a writing kid compared to something else, you can look at other colleges that have writing programs. So that's how I would look at it. And sometimes schools, you know, it's easy to figure out they compete with each other because they're in the same conference, athletically. Cheryl, uh, what about if one parent is deceased? So. That doesn't necessarily get factored in the formulas that way directly, but indirectly it comes down to income and savings. And a lot of times, uh, widows of um, this, you know, of a, of a of a spouse have low income and high assets, and then that which is actually the perfect storm for us to be able to reposition assets and get them a lot more aid. So we, we have a client um, last year. Uh, I won't I won't say her name, but her daughter got into a um, very prestigious liberal arts college. She's going to play a sp and she was sitting on a lot of money, but she, and she worked, but she had a very modest income, but she did a net price calculator. She wasn't going to get any money. So we worked with her to reposition her assets and she ended up getting, um, I think 25 or 30,000 bucks fr from that school. So, uh, so she was very happy and that's kind of like a perfect storm, but that's a very common scenario. So you can get more money, but it's, it's, it's not necessarily because someone's deceased or not. It's just based on how you look financially. Um, Carrie Taylor, I printed out PDF of the FAFSA. Can't find where to inform that a parent is deceased. Um, I don't know where it is. It's on there, but it is on there. When you register, yeah, is it when you register, Pearl? It's, it's there somewhere. Okay. Just, just trust us. Um, Lucy R., does cost of attendance include room and board or not? Yeah, it does. Cost of attendance is everything. Room and board, tuition, everything. 
Julie, CS's profile school is not likely to have merit for parents who have high income run businesses with high net worth, even though they have less than 100 employees. Um, we've found that not to be true. So I'm, I'm not, you know, you may have your own experiences, but we have found that not to be true at all. We, in fact, the CS's profile schools tend to give the most merit money, um, actually. Uh, Katie, um, Pearl, big age difference between parents, blah, blah, military family. Um, rental, property, retirement. I think Zephyr, can you just answer that privately, I guess? You know what I'm talking about? There's a question for you in there. But that is, yeah, the rental property um, may or may not may or may not help you. Um, I'm sorry, it's going to hurt you, but you might be able to do something with it. Uh, Carrie, do families have to send in copies of bank statements and other supporting documents? That's a good question. Only if you're asked, only if you're verified. Most of the time, it won't happen, but there's at least a 30% chance that it could happen from one school. Um, Cheryl, I fought the director of financial aid of the school and received more grant money. Nice. Pearl really helped me. Cool. So it sounded like Pearl helped you with a fist fight. Pearl's very aggressive as a former prosecutor. I don't know if people always, always know. We got to start telling people more that, you know, that you were a former uh, prosecutor in Queens County. She did hearings against mob lawyers and stuff. She's, she's tough. Don't, don't piss her off. Um, but good, Cheryl. It's cool. Uh, Laura, my house is paid for and I have seven figures in savings. Am I paying full sticker price? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, that's it's we have plenty of clients who don't pay full sticker price who have very similar um, situations. Depends on your income, depends on what schools you're applying to. Sometimes you can reposition things so that you're going to improve your eligibility. So you're definitely not dead in the water. Lucy, my son's going to a sophomore year. I guess that's college. Our income changed before he started. Financially is aware. We are working with financially, but not admissions. We now send info to admissions, even though he's a sophomore. Um, I think it's a it's an exercise in futility at this point. Admissions, they want to bribe you to come, but once you're there, they know they have you. So, wish I could give you a better answer. Um, Rob, with the new tax act, has it created new planning opportunities that were not available previously? Um, a little bit. You know, for example. The thing about spending ten thousand um, bucks of a five twenty nine towards college, uh, towards high schools, in you know, private high school, private secondary school, that could be helpful. Um, David, screw college. What's the number to that truck driving school? You know what's funny is we have conversations like this all the time because we have um, you know we, so so proceeds everyone's tax returns and financials. We have doctors, lawyers, and accountants. We have um, you know. Uh, truck drivers, construction contractors, auto body guys, uh, electricians, you know, you name it. And more often than not, it's those, you know, kind of blue collar truck driver type guys who, you know, they may have a good income, um, but they have a lot of assets. You know, a lot, a lot of times they're doing really well financially, better than the first category. So, so that is, it's a funny comment and it's, uh, it's a bittersweet comment. Thank you. Thank you for that moment. Um, Stacy, if you get a scholarship for freshman year, is it similar for the next three years? You have to reapply every year. Okay. Need-based aid, you reapply every year. Scholarships, which are merit-based, usually you get them every year, provided that you hit the minimum GPA that's required. So there's a distinction there. That's good. Um, David, do kids need to sign the financial aid forms? Yeah. There's a, um, what is it now? The FSA ID and the, and the PIN? I don't know. Yeah, FSA ID. But does a kid sign the forms? In effect, they are signing the forms. Electronically. Okay. Yep. 
Um, Ron, your rule of thumb is that the income portion of the EFC was 30%. So you have very low assets by high income. Will you still be expected to contribute at least 30% of your income? In other words, will low assets not add to the EFC or possibly reduce it? Um, they're looked at independent of each other. So there's no, you know, they just get added together. So if you have a high income and low assets, that's not going to help you or hurt you any more than if you had high income and high assets. It's all about each individual component. So um, the, that's kind of a situation where you're not going to qualify for need-based aid generally because it's a lot easier to reposition assets, but you can't really do anything about income unless you want to risk going to jail. And um, I just don't recommend that for most of my clients. So, you know, you go away, the kid goes to college, you go away yourself. Hey, meet Bubba, your new roommate. Um, so, yeah, it's not, it's not going to... Yeah, they're not going to say, "Oh, you have you know you make three hundred thousand dollars, but you know you have three dollars saved, so we're going to lower your EFC, you know, to twenty thousand bucks." Not not at all. It just won't penalize you as much as if you had more money saved. Okay, so I think that we are almost done here. Pro, you got anything else that came in? Okay. Um, all right. So listen, if you, if you have um, you know some, I just I said this before, but if you have any. One-on-one, -on -one, you know, not-for-public uh, type of questions for us, and um, you're interested in, in potentially exploring working together, see if we're a good fit, and all that. Then uh, please feel free to take me up on this offer. Uh, we had a lot of people register for this. I still see about seventy-something people on. We had 160 something registered, so you know, the, the, I think those spots are going to fill up very, very quickly. Uh, so if you are interested at all. You know, go ahead and click the um, the uh, college strategy session offer. Otherwise, thanks a lot for watching. Uh, it's about, been about an hour and a half, so I want to respect everyone's time. I know you had other things to do uh, as opposed to sit in front of your computer. So thanks a lot for uh, for spending this time with me. And on behalf of Pearl, thanks a lot, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Andy Lockwood. Don't forget to visit our website, lockwoodcollegeprep.com for some more free, valuable information on how you can multiply your chances of admission to your dream colleges and qualify for thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of fat, juicy scholarships along the way. Visit LockwoodCollegePrep.com for information on our free upcoming workshops and webinars and to download a copy of our number one best-selling book, How to Pay Wholesale for College. That's LockwoodCollegePrep.com. Bye-bye.